the individual investor show. You bought it all, aren't you? Here, one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. Hello, and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jenna Brashear, your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. We are excited to bring you yet another II show. Tonight's event is the Individual Investor Show AAII's Stock Screen 2021 Wrap-Up. I want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor, and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. This week, we sit down with AAII financial analyst Charles Rapplett and Wayne Thorpe as we review our numerous stock screens to see which ones outperformed the market in 2021, which ones surprised us, and which ones fell short, if any. You won't want to miss out on this enlightening panel discussion with the men behind the numbers. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation. Hello, Charles. Thanks so much for sitting down to chat with me uh, today about the end of the year stock screens. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, and um, AAII's uh, end of year stock screen wrap up helps us evaluate um, our stock screens on their overall strategy and process to reflect on how they performed over the course of the year, which was 2021. And for this year, there were quite a few outstanding performances and surprises. Uh, so I did want to ask you about that and see uh, what your perspectives were on, uh, on our end of year stock screen wrap up. Sure. Excellent. And um, uh, so I wanted to ask you about um, your take on the overall performance of AAII's numerous stock screens. Um, and how they measured up uh, with past year, as well as how they've been um, impacted by current market trends. So my first question is, uh, let's, I guess we'll start with some basics. Uh, what is a stock screen and how can investors use them to their advantage? Yes, yeah, so I'm a big proponent of stock screens. I've used them long before I joined AAII. Uh, a stock screen, a good way to think about it, it's really a database filter. So if a person can quantify what they want in a stock, uh, maybe a really basic screen, you know, I want a price to earnings below 20. Um, I want a growth rate above 5% in sales and earnings. Uh, and I want debt to be below a certain level. If those are the traits that you look in a stock and you say, if a stock has these traits, I'm interested in doing more. You can plug those into a stock screen and say, give me those Give me those. I want, you know, find me stocks with P below 20, uh, earnings and sales growth above 5%, and maybe debt to equity below 50%. The stock screen will go out and find those stocks. Now, it's important to realize it's a database filter. So the stock screen is only looking for those specific criteria. And all the stocks that have those criteria, the screen will find. But what it's doing is, so there's about 4,500 uh, exchange-listed stocks in the U.S., the stock screen is sorting through all 4,500 stocks and just finding those with those specific traits. So if you view investing, if you look at the whole universe, you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, in a huge haystack. In this case, the screen's going through and just pulling out individual pieces of hay, lying across the floor and saying, hey, look at these. And you can then sort through and see where that needle is. So it's a very, it's a great way of actually finding stocks because you'll find stocks you've never heard of that might have all the characteristics you desire, uh, but it's also a better way of finding stocks because if you look, say, at CNBC, you look at Kiplinger's, maybe you're on Reddit's, Wall Street Bets, whatever your, your list of ideas, you're getting a very small number of ideas that people are handpicking. 
versus a stock screen, you're saying, you know what, I want stocks that have these specific traits, find them for me. So you have your own mini universe of ideas that you can find stocks that you actually are very appealing to you. So I think it's a very good way of finding potentially winning stocks and potentially very good investments for your portfolio. Makes sense. And uh, so why does AAII conduct a performance review of our stock screens each year? Well, there's two reasons. One, we want to actually see how the screens are actually performing because at the end of the day, stock investing, everybody's doing it to increase their net wealth or provide a stream of cash flow. Uh, but the other thing for our members, it gives them an idea about how the screens are performing year in and year out. Uh, and so we actually gives our members an idea when they look at the screen, they can see how it's performing. But I think it's really important not just to focus on how did the screens perform in 2021 or how did the screens perform in 2020 or 2013 or whatever you look at, but really look at the broader trend. Has the screen consistently delivered great results? Has it, have the returns been high or low? Are there certain market conditions where the screens have performed better or worse on? So we encourage members not to just look at this year, and we notice a lot of interest on how did things do in the last 12 months, but look at the broader trends. It gives you an idea of how the performance is. Now, I do want to point out that our performance, the way we calculate our performance is we assume every stock passing the screens purchased at the beginning of the month, held for one month, the portfolio is completely liquidated, and then we start over. We're not tracking transaction costs. These are not actual portfolios where we're buying and holding. We're simply using a very mechanical approach to see how the screen would have followed. Uh, in a real life portfolio, you'd probably hold the stock for more than a month. Uh, you would have transaction costs, meaning the price you bought might be different than the end of day prices we're using to buy the stock. Um, you could have tax costs, you could have dividends, so there's other factors going on. But those returns give you a pretty good idea of how each screen's performing, which have done well over certain periods and which haven't done so well. It's important to, important to consider. Um, and uh, what can you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what can investors learn um, from looking back at our 2021 end of year set, stock screen roundup? And what can they uh, expect for you know the coming year? Well, I think 21 really gives you a good idea of what actually worked well. Uh, and for instance, you know, some of our best performing screens were small caps. So we did see small caps doing really well. So if you look not just at the names of the screens, but look at the type of screens, you get a sense of what type of style was actually in place over the last year. Was it growth? Was it value? Uh, was it momentum? Was it earnings? That's not revision. So you can actually give you some color on the market itself, uh, but it also gives you an idea if you're looking at screens, you want to know what's working well, what types of strategies are working well. The screens will give it to you. So you can actually look at those screens and perhaps you want to build your own screen. You have certain strategies. You can see you know, is it value? And if it's value, is it large cap value? Is it small cap value? If it's growth, is it growth of momentum? Is it growth at a reasonable price? So it sort of gives you, actually gives you some information, uh, some color on what's going on in the market besides just the hard numbers themselves. That makes sense. And um, we kind of talked about uh, small caps in the beginning. And um, I was just, I wanted to ask you your opinion on what, why do you think small caps were able to see a revival uh, despite those uncertain times with COVID, inflation, and other things uh, last year? You know, there's a few factors at play. One, obviously, was the economic reopening, uh, the fact we got vaccines rolled out, um, you know, the surges in the coronavirus cases, um, although high, to the, and I had a high human cost. 
the economic cost to them hasn't been severe. And I do think we see investors overall looking past the pandemic to where the economy is going. Uh, but I think the other argument too, and this really hasn't been hit on enough in the headlines, uh, but we do see various commentators making comments of it. We've talked about it in AI Journal uh, in our premium newsletters is that if you look at the valuations of small cap stocks relative to large cap stocks, small cap stocks are historically undervalued by too great a margin. Uh, and so a good way to describe it is if you think of a pendulum and it swings back and forth. And so at one end, small cap values are really overvalued. And at the other end, large cap stocks are really overvalued relative to small cap stocks. And the large cap stocks have been very overvalued relative to small cap stocks. It's been this way for, for probably about two years now. And so I think we're starting to see this pendulum start swinging back in terms of small cap stocks, meaning that the price of book, the price of earnings, the price of sales for small cap stocks relative to large cap stocks is too low. And I think you're starting to see investors across the market looking at, smart, at small cap stocks and realizing these things are just too small. And it means one of two things, either the historical relationship has completely broken down, or if we think about valuations of rubber band, this rubber band's become stretched too, too much, and it's somewhat going to snap back. And perhaps we're starting to see some of that snap back occur right now. Interesting. And um, as, so in the AAII stock screening community, um, there's been some questions about how to use the estimates revision screens. Is there anything, any guidance you can offer uh, in individual investors? Yeah, absolutely. So before I worked at AI, I worked at Zach's Investment uh, Research, and they're very focused on earnings estimates. So we did a lot of research into them. Uh, with earnings estimates, I, it's very important to realize these are a seasonal number. Um, and so what happens is the company reports earnings, um, announces new guidance, analysts make adjustments to their to their forecasts. And so those changes will cause the stock to either appear in our earnings estimates revised up, meaning analysts are more optimistic about companies' uh, prospects, or you'll see it passing our estimates revised downstream, meaning analysts are lowering their forecasts and they're more pessimistic on a company's outlook. Now, what usually happens is analysts tend to make those changes and then they go dormant. So particularly, we see this after earnings season, see a lot of earnings estimates revisions being made because companies are announcing new guidance, releasing new results, analysts have new information, they adjust their models. And so you see a lot of stocks starting to pass those screens. And then as we move, say, a month away from earnings season, we see the number of the estimates drop. And you see a company that might have passed an earnings estimate screen no longer pass it because analysts aren't making any change. And some people will look at that saying, well, it's no longer passing the screen. I shouldn't hold on to it anymore. Uh, often you actually see that company just go dormant because analysts aren't doing anything. They're waiting for new information. And there's what's known as a cockroach effect, meaning that if a company reports a surprise or changes its guidance, chances are if it happens once, you can see it happen again. You tend to see this in cycles. So you can see a company passing on estimate revision screen stop passing it because analysts have gone dormant. And then when the next earnings report comes out, the company issues new guidance, beats again, analysts adjust their guidance, and all of a sudden the stock appears on the screen again. So while there can be a temptation to think and look at the screens and say, I'm going to just hold the stock only what's on the screen and then get rid of it, you actually encounter a lot of trading costs. And there can actually be a, a tail effect, a little tailwind, 
where analysts make their changes and you actually see the benefit, say if they're revising their estimates up, you actually see the benefit of that lasting longer than a stock staying on that screen for that one month period. So I would actually have investors think about whether or not they want to continue holding on to stock over multiple cycles versus just doing it once. But obviously, if you're buying a stock because estimates were revised upwards and suddenly they're no longer being revised upwards following the next earnings report or worse yet, they're being cut, then that would be your sign to perhaps get rid of the stock. But if you go this method, you will have less transactions uh, and also less decisions to make as well. That's definitely something to consider. And, um, and I did want to ask, as a creator of the PRISM Academy, uh, which is a five-step course that helps teach people how to invest with confidence, um, especially going into a whole new year that we're not very sure of, um, how can investors use stock screens to fund those financial goals? And can they use the stock screens for both short-term and long-term goals? Yeah, so the stock screens themselves, it works great with it. So PRISM is our wealth building process. It's a five-step process uh, for creating a framework to tie really your investing goals with your financial decisions. And step four of it is selecting and managing your investments. So in this case, if someone has an allocation to stocks and their preferences, they want to hold individual stocks, stock screens work excellent here. And as, as I said earlier, I'm a big proponent of stock screens. So if you identify your needs as stocks and, and step three, you identify your preferences as some, you're someone who wants to be a do-it-yourself investor, walk your sleeves, pick your own stocks, the stock screens work really well. Now, in terms of goals, you're really thinking long-term because you're holding stocks and you really want to hold stocks to the long-term because over the short-term, stocks are volatile. Uh, you can have a goal approaching, say, next month and Mr. Market wakes up and he's in a horrible mood, throws a big temper tantrum, and all of a sudden you're going to fall short. So I think people with the short-term goals, it's not just a question of should they use stock screens or not. It's really a question of should they have use stocks at all versus saying, have that money set aside in a low volatility uh, account, say money markets or CDs, so they're not subjecting the money to spend, say, in the next 12 to 36 to 48 months, have that exposed to the, to really to the variations of the market, the volatility of the stock market, uh, because you don't want to have that sequence risk of where the market, the stock market encounters a period of bad returns right at the time you need to spend that money. And that's why it's so important to uh, time your goals like we do uh, talk about in the Prism Academy as well. Um, Absolutely. And then I also did want to touch on your article, uh, When to Rebalance a Portfolio, which is in the January 2022 issue of the AAII Journal. And um, just one of my first questions is, uh, what is rebalancing your portfolio and why does everyone have varying strategies? Yeah, so rebalancing is basically taking your allocation and moving it back to target. So as a very simplistic example, uh, say you have a portfolio that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. You wake up one day, the market's doing well, all of a sudden your portfolio is now 65% stocks and 35% bonds. Well, if your allocation called for 60% stocks, 40% bonds, all of a sudden that's no longer your allocation. So rebalancing is basically adjusting your portfolio. You're taking money out of stocks, in this case, taking 5% of your portfolio out of stocks, reducing that 65% down to 40%. And then your bonds, which are right now 35%, you're taking that 5% of your portfolio value that's now in cash and boosting your bond allocation up to 40%. So you're bringing it back to that target allocation. Um, and the whole point of diversification is if you have an allocation 
and you believe that allocation is the right allocation for you, then rebalancing is simply a form of preserving that allocation. Because if you do not change your allocation, over time, your portfolio is going to drift and you're going to end up with a portfolio allocation that's very different than what you started out with. And if you want a portfolio allocation, say that's mostly stocks, that's fine. But that should be your original starting allocation. Your goals, you shouldn't be not having your portfolio drift to that because you didn't do anything. You should be starting out with that allocation. So rebalancing is really a matter of just preserving your allocation. It really starts with finding an allocation that's right for you, given your goals and your tolerance for risk. And in your article, you do mention, you know, you say that uh, portfolio rebalancing is a buy low, sell high strategy. Uh, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. So the idea is with rebalancing, you're basically putting money back into the assets that are underperforming. And a lot of people, that sounds like, well, just give me cough syrup. I'd rather drink that instead. But it really, when you think about it, if one asset's underperforming, chances are its valuation is going to be lower. Um, and when rebalancing really works, uh, particularly in the equity side, is if you have a market correction or a bear market, uh, that's when rebalancing is really beneficial because that's the time that your stock allocation is probably going to be below your, your targeted asset allocation. So it gives you the ability to go in there and buy stocks when they're cheap. Now you could do that with other assets. Um, if you have bonds, maybe you have real estate, maybe you're a cryptocurrency. Um, you're actually you're actually sheltering, you're actually moving money to the assets that are underperforming. Now, some people might say, well, I'm taking money out of the assets doing, doing well. Yes, you are, but if that asset's doing really well, there's a reasonable chance that asset class is either highly valued or perhaps expensively valued. So you never, you'll never time the top and your goal is not to time the top, but your goal is to say, hey, this asset class is doing really well. well let me take some profits off of it before it peaks. And I wish I had taken some money off the table then. And speaking of timing, um, you know, when, when we talk about rebalancing your portfolio, in your own opinion, what is the best time to do this? There's a couple of theories on, what, on how to do it. One is just to do annual rebalancing. Um, and the argument for doing that is January 1, you check your allocation, you just rebalance. It's a very, very simple, some very simple way of doing it. Um, you will resolve more transactions. Um, and it's important to realize that investing is messy. So if you set your allocation, again, we'll use this very simplistic example of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. On any given day, it might be 62% stocks, 38% bonds, maybe 41% bonds, 39% stocks. It will fluctuate depending on how market conditions are doing. And so you don't want to rebalance too often because not only will you have a lot of transactions, you'll literally just drive yourself crazy. Uh, but you also want to allow your portfolio, give your chance for your winners to run. So the point of rebalancing is to have some reins on it so your winners don't run too far and become too large a portion of your portfolio. But you want to allow the asset classes that are doing well room to run. Um, so how often should you do it? Uh, Vanguard's looked at the data and they suggest using bands of five or 10 percentage points. So if your allocation moves five or 10 percentage balance uh percentage points off target, then you rebalance. And I think it's good to tie it with certain calendar calendar periods. Um, you can look at it at the end of each year. Um, I tend to look at my portfolios at the end of April, at the end of October, the end of April is the end of the best performing six months for the markets, which is November, sorry, it's November through April. Uh, and the worst six months historically has been May through October. So I use those as signals, has my portfolio shifted too much? Um, 
you know, some people just say you look less often. Maybe you look once every two years. So it's the, the, the point of when you look and when the thresholds you draw are up for debate. But I think the point is you do set thresholds and you say, if my portfolio is off balance by this percentage point on this date, I'm going to act. And if it's not over, off kilter too much by that point, I'm not going to do anything. So a lot of times with rebalancing, you're checking, there's nothing to do, and you just go on. You don't touch your portfolio again. Uh, but those times when it does happen, then you can do it. And for people who rather rebalance less often, they could also look at just major market points. If the market's had a really huge, stock market's had a really big run, uh, maybe at that point you say, you know, if the market's gained 30%, I'm going to check or Perhaps if I know the market's fallen by 20%, I'm going to check. So you just set these thresholds. And the thresholds are up for debate about in terms of when you look, whether it's performance or calendar dates. But the point is you do have that written down and you're checking your portfolio routinely on those dates and you're prepared to act if your portfolio is off target by a certain predefined range. Makes sense. And uh, we have quite a few members that are either nearing or already in retirement. Uh, what would rebalancing look like for them? And what would they want to primarily focus on? So it, when you approach re, uh, retirement, it's sequence risk becomes a big factor. Sequence towards again, is the, is the chance in the markets incurring a period of bad returns. And the reason why it's really dangerous right when you retire, soon after you retire, is that's the point where you're starting to take money out of your portfolio. And what you want to avoid is having to pull money out of your portfolio, uh, particularly sell, I should really say having to sell stocks right about the time you're about to retire, soon after you retire, when the market's down. And so when you start approaching retirement years, uh, in his book, uh, Investing at Level 3, Jim Clinton recommended a period of four years, um, you want to start building what's known as really buffer assets. And these are very low assets that are, Unquality with the performance of the markets. Um, Jim Clinton used a cash bucket. Uh, he suggests between two to four years uh, of assets and of, you know of expenditures in cash. So what are you going to spend over the next two to four years? Hold that in cash. Um, I've seen others suggest using a reverse mortgage. Um, those can be expensive. Those can be complicated. So you want those need to be investigated, or, or perhaps using an annuity. Uh, but the point is you start developing this very safe asset. So if the market drops, you do not, right soon after you retire, you do not have to sell stocks in a down market. You have, these, you have these very safe assets you can rely on for cash flow. So that's the one thing. Uh, but also I think people as they retire, take a look at their allocation, see how aggressive it is and look at the retirement goals. How much of the retirement is going to be covered by non-portfolio sources of income, meaning uh, annuities, pension benefits, social security benefits. And if you're realizing you're going to have to rely on your portfolio to fund retirement, then you want to start considering what is your likely longevity? Uh, are you in good health? Did you have parents that lived a long time? If so, at age 65, you could be looking at 30 years of retirement, which means you need to think a lot about growth. Um, if unfortunately you have a lot of health conditions, uh, perhaps there's, you know, your family unfortunately doesn't have uh, a good history of longevity, then you might want to be more conservative um, in that scenario. So it, it, de it definitely varies, but you definitely want to do that assessment as you near retirement and not when you not when you're retired, but really think about four or five years in advance about what you need to do as you approach retirement um, and how your risk, your tolerance for risk might evolve at that point. And I'll point out, prison process helps you do this. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, in step two of the prison process right now, we are um, we're in the AI community and we're talking about sequence risk and, um, you know, your risk tolerance. We have a risk tolerance worksheet that we've been going through each different parts to show um, why it's important to think about this before you even retire, like you said. Um, and in, in regards to the Prison Academy, uh, how does rebalancing your portfolio each year stay on track for your overall financial plan? Yeah, so that's goes in our step five, which is basically monitoring your portfolio um, and, your, and your life stages um, and your allocation. So that step five is really part of it. As you're doing your step five and you're monitoring your overall portfolio, that point of rebalancing is part of your strategy. You want to make sure that's part of your rules. It's part of step five. Uh, you're checking your portfolio on pre-designated dates to see if your portfolio needs rebalancing. If it does, at that point, that's when you would do the rebalancing. That makes sense. And, um, you know, we talked about a little bit about stock screens um, in the first part of the interview. Um, I did want to ask you, does looking at the end of year performance review of stock screens help you rebalance your portfolio into the next year? It doesn't necessarily do it. It might give you some clues in terms of your falling styles. Um, so if you want to start a mix, say, of growth versus value, it can give you some ideas. But I think ultimately it still comes down to looking at your portfolio because you have a situation where maybe you relied on growth screens, you relied on value screens, and Perhaps you relied on growth screens and values had a good year. Well, you might still find that one growth stock that did extremely well. Um, so you still want to look at your portfolio, but it can give you an idea when you look at the screens in terms of what did well. Um, if styles are part of your allocation that you want to have a certain exposure to growth, you want to have a certain exposure to say value, or perhaps you're following the momentum factor or dividends, that'll give you an idea if, you're, if that's part of your investing philosophy to give you some idea about what types of investments have done well and what haven't. That makes sense. And um, is there anything else you'd like to highlight from your article about uh, when to rebalance a portfolio? You know, the one thing I will point out is some people look at rebalancing and think to themselves, well, I don't need to do it. But I think it's important to realize, going back to this point, if you think allocation is important, that's important that you maintain an allocation. Now, the allocation could be 100% stocks, which in case you don't need to rebalance, your portfolio is what it is. But if your portfolio allocation is anything but 100% stocks, then I would encourage you to periodically look at your portfolio and decide, does your current portfolio still match that desired allocation? If it doesn't, then you either should rebalance. And if you think to yourself, well, I like my current allocation, then I think maybe going through a prison process and determining, is that allocation the right one for me? And if so, codify it and then make that the allocation you're checking to see whether or not your portfolio needs to be rebalanced. I agree. That makes sense. And yeah, and you can uh, join the Prism Academy either by going to our website to our learn and uh, learn and plan or planning uh, tab on the top of our navigation bar, um, which I can, I can link at the end of uh, the interview. And then you can also go to community.aaii.com. But yeah, uh, thank you so much for shedding some light on uh, both the stock screens and your new article. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, Charles. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and um, if you, I'd like to tell members, um, if you'd like to check out our end of your stock screens article or Charles's how to rebalance your portfolio article, uh, you can find them both in the January 2022 issue of the AAII journal uh, by visiting aaii.com slash journal to learn more. And yeah, I want to thank you again, and I really appreciate you, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. You too, Jenna. Thanks, Charles. Take care. Hello, Wayne. Thanks so much for sitting down to chat with me today about the end of the year stock screens. Oh, my pleasure. Great to see you, Jenna. Yeah, it's good to see you too. And uh, so AAII's uh, end of year stock screen wrap up helps us evaluate our stock screens on their overall strategy and process to reflect on how they performed over the course of the year 2021. And this year, 
they were quite a few uh, outstanding performances and surprises. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, get some of your opinions, and uh, and yeah, hear your perspectives. Uh, the first question I have is, uh, let's start with some basics. So what does the end of the year stock screens uh, review focus on? Well, I mean, just some, some broad overview uh, is most members are probably aware of AI tracks uh, 60 different stock idea screens uh, on our website. Uh, these are screens that AI has developed uh, over you know the last 20 plus years, um, you know based on uh, the writings or the the strategies of many well-known investors, uh, you know uh, Warren Buffett, William O'Neill, David Dremen, Jim O'Shaughnessy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as well as uh, common investment factors. Uh, so these are more investment characteristics uh, that have been shown to generate uh, above average performance uh, over the long term. So, you know, issues such as you know, value, uh, size, quality, uh, estimate revisions, uh, and things like that. Uh, so the annual stock screening review that appears in the journal uh, is is a, a synopsis or a recap of how all these strategies have performed uh, over the last year. Uh, so that's, you know, generally speaking, that's what you're getting uh, from that. And it's also, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting just to see because on a year-to-year basis, you know, uh, to, to look to see uh, a, a, the, whether a certain uh, strategy was the best performer or the worst performer in a given year isn't necessarily meaningful from an investment standpoint. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It's a bit of trivia uh, and things like that. But to say that, you know, for example, the Shaughnessy small cap growth and value screen, which was the top performing screen for this year, you know, the fact that it was the top performer in 2021 uh, is just more of a, a piece of trivia or a, a factual statement. Uh, you know, you really need to start drilling down as far as, you know, what was the underlying strategy? Uh, you know, do these components have long-term predictive uh, power? Uh, so, you know, it's nice to say or see what things have done well and inevitably everyone likes to see, you know, I'm a O'Shaughnessy fan. How did he perform this year? Or I'm a Neff fan. Um, but so it's, it's an interesting and it, it's an interesting exercise to perform every year. That makes sense. And um, what criteria do um, our analysts use to create the end of your stack screen review? Because I know you mentioned a little bit, but wanted to get a little bit more information on that. Well, it's, I mean, we, we track 60 uh, different stock screens um, and, you know, the, as far as the methodology we follow to come up with the performance, we look at everything. Uh, we look at all 60, you know, warts and all. Uh, we don't, there are a lot of, uh, not a lot. I'm aware of, of certain services that will only uh, highlight, you know, the best of the best uh, in a given year. Uh, and, you know, I think it's definitely useful to know uh, what types of, of criteria, types of strategies perform well. Uh, but it's also, I think, very, uh, very worthwhile and informative to know what doesn't perform well as well. Uh, so, you know, we look at all 60 uh, of our stock screens. Uh, as far as the, the performance that we're reporting, uh, some people aren't aware of this, but I think it's very important to point out the fact that all of the performance data that we report on our website, as well as in uh, this uh, annual review article uh, is hypothetical performance. Uh, we don't have real money invested in these different stock idea screens. Um, what we do is um, we run these screens monthly uh, and 
AI members, basic members, uh, can access updated lists of the passing companies that pass all of these screens um, the first trading day of every month. Uh, if you are a subscriber to our A-plus service or Stock Investor Pro, which is our fundamental stock screening program, uh, you can access these passing companies lists on a daily basis. But for our performance uh, calculations, uh, we run a screen uh, at the end of a month. And you know whether it's one company or 100 companies, uh, we track, we, we, we make note of all of the tickers that pass a screen uh, at the end of the month. Uh, so for example, you know, if we're calculating the January 2022 performance of a given stock screen, we will have logged all of the stocks that pass a given screen as of December 31st, 2021. Fast forward now to the end of trading uh, for January. We then track what the average price change has been for all of those tickers that passed a given screen at the end of December. And we track what the average performance was on a price basis only that we don't take into account uh, dividends or anything like that. And what the average price change for all of the tickers that passed at the end of December throughout January, that is the performance, quote unquote, of that given stock strategy. Uh, so they're hypothetical. It's strictly price change, doesn't take into account dividends, but also it's important to point out that it doesn't take into account uh, commissions uh, or things like the bid ask spread or things like that. Now, in the basically zero commission uh, environment that we're currently in, where most uh, online discount brokers no longer charge commissions on the buy side, depending on the strategy and the companies that are passing a given strategy, bed ask spread, which is the difference between uh, what stocks are being transacted and someone who's willing to buy a stock or willing to sell a stock, you know, that differential could be pretty significant. And the bid ask spread is in effect um, how much you need to gain on a stock just to break even after you buy it. Uh, so if it's a strategy that tracks very thinly traded uh, or small stocks, uh, the bid ask spread could be pretty significant. Uh, but again, that's how we go about calculating the performance for all of the, uh, the stock streams that we track. Okay, and well, what can investors learn by reviewing our end-of-year stock screen wrap-up for the previous year? I mean, I think I said earlier, you know, on a year-to-year -year basis, it's more, uh, you know, trivia or just, you know, it's interesting to know that these different strategies uh, either performed well or didn't perform well. Uh, you know, 2021, uh, I think, you know, for most people would say turned out to be a pleasant surprise uh, from a stock investment standpoint, you know, the markets uh, turned in a, a very strong year, uh, especially considering, you know, the ongoing COVID pandemic, uh, you know, inflation uh, at a 30 plus year high, uh, you know, all of the supply chain issues that we've been reading about and everything like that. It was a good year. Uh, and, you know, of the 60 stock screens that we track, uh, only 10 uh, were down for the year. Uh, so, you know, that was uh, very good. Um, Fortunately, I had it in front of me and I don't remember, but I think roughly about a quarter of the strategies that we follow uh, beat the S&P 500 as well uh, for the year. Uh, so, you know, it's very interesting uh, to, to see these uh, things uh, on an annual basis. But really, you know, if you're looking for it, you know, from an investment standpoint, what I think was really most meaningful is when you start looking at the longer term performance. Uh, so, you know, three, five, ten 
uh, year performance or is since inception, which for most cases uh, starts from the uh, beginning of 1998. And what you'll see is, you know, that's where things, you know, start to average out. Uh, so from an investment standpoint, I think it's really most meaningful looking at our stock screens is seeing those strategies that have performed well over longer periods of time. Uh, you know, perfect example, uh, last year, uh, the uh, foolish small cap eight screen was our top performer. Um, but this year uh, was one of only 10 screens that actually posted a negative return for this year. So, you know, just to buy what's the best this year typically won't translate into being the top performer again last year. But at the same point in time, when you look at the five and 10 year or since inception numbers, that foolish small cap eight screen does rise back up towards the top over the long term. So you, you might have a great year one year, a poor year the next year. But then when you start looking at the longer term, that's where I think is most beneficial for an investor. For an investor. Makes sense. And so as we delve a little bit more into um, the specific strategies that were performed really well, um, what was the top performing stock screen in 2021? And why do you think it performed well? Well, the uh, the top performing uh, idea screen for 2021 was the uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy uh, small cap growth and value screen. Uh, you know, this is a, a screen uh, that um, a was looking for for small companies, so they're looking for companies that have a market cap between 200 million and 2 billion. Uh, small cap stocks did have a, a, a good year uh, last year, uh, but it's also a, a value screen. Uh, and the value criteria for this particular screen is looking at a price to sales ratio uh, of 1.5 or lower. Uh, and so a small cap value stocks actually uh, did uh, very well last year as well. So I think it sort of it rode the, the tide uh, of, of small cap value stocks uh, doing well. Um, and, you know, the, the growth component, it's a very basic growth component. Uh, it's looking for positive earnings growth uh, over the last four quarters. But I think the other thing that was extremely beneficial, uh, and we see this repeating itself over and over, is there's also a price momentum uh, component to this particular screen. And that's looking at uh, relative strength uh, against the overall market over the last 13 and 26 weeks and looking for stocks that have at least above average uh, relative strength. And there's a lot of academic studies out there that show that if you uh, momentum strategies, looking at uh, relative strength, 13, 26 week, et cetera, and overlaying that with a more value oriented approach uh, does perform well in the long term. Uh, again, you know, there might be through because of you know, market rotation, things like that, it might have a, a bad stretch of a year or two, but over the long term, uh, integrating both momentum and value has been shown to to generate uh, above average returns. And as far as the top factor strategy for 2021 that was listed in the article, um, it was our price to free cash flow screen. Uh, so what, what does it focus on um, and what advantages does it offer investors uh, compared to other similar stock screens? Well, the, the price to free cash flow screen, uh, that's a, that is a value uh, oriented approach. Uh, so the first thing it does is it look, looks for companies that have generated positive free cash flow over each of the last five uh, fiscal years. Uh, and you know, 
myself as an investor, I really do look at uh, free cash flow. Free cash flow is the, basically the cash the company has left over uh, from its operations after taking into account uh, its capital expenditures. So basically, you know, what it needs to do to keep the lights on as well as expand, uh, as well as then um, paying dividends. Uh, so a company that's generating positive free cash flow, uh, they have cash to be reinvesting in themselves, whether that's to investing in new property, plant, or equipment, making acquisitions, uh, you know, paying down debt, uh, so maybe improving its balance sheet, uh, or if you're an, uh, a dividend investor, you know that's additional cash that then they can potentially be raising uh, the dividend or buying back shares. Uh, so it's looking for companies that are generating, have a history of positive free cash flow, but then it also looks for companies that have a price to free cash flow uh, that's below the industry average, uh, is, and generally speaking, ranks in the uh, if they pass all of the other criteria, we then look at the 30 companies that have the lowest price to free cash flow. So these are companies generating strong positive free cash, uh, as well as that are trading at a discount uh, based on price to free cash flow. Uh, so this is, uh, again, probably rode the tide of value, making a bit of a comeback uh, last year. Uh, I would say that's probably the biggest thing, is the fact that it was uh, it was a, it's a value oriented approach, but then also speaks volumes to the fact that you know free cash flow uh, typically uh, points to a, a stronger company fundamentally. And you mentioned um, before that you know we don't all we don't just look at the best performing, but also you know the uh, the not so or the weak performing as well. Uh, so I did want to uh, bring up that we found that the weakest strategy was the insider net purchase screen. Uh, why do you think it performed poorly this year compared to other years? Well, actually, and it's, you know, you'll look over the long term, uh, as I, I said at the top, uh, you know, over the long term, you'll typically see the same screens rising to the top. Uh, when you look over the long term, you'll often see the same stock stream screens falling to the bottom. Uh, and the the insider screen historically has been one of our weakest performing strategies. And, you know, there's a couple of... This is my own opinion. I have no you know, firm data to back this up. But first and foremost, this is the only strategy that I think AAII tracks that has absolutely no financial strength or fundamental criteria uh, involved in the screen. It is looking for uh, companies that uh, are smaller, actually have a market cap of less than a billion, uh, which depending on what... Uh, sector rotation or market rotations going on, that will have an impact on the performance. But it's looking for companies whose insiders have been making net purchases uh, of the stock over the, uh, over the last uh, several months. Uh, and that's it. Um, so first and foremost, you know, insider buying as a standalone screen has not been shown to, to perform well. Uh, but I think also you know, at least in my mind, if I'm an insider and I want to buy my stock, when would be a great time to buy the stock? Well, if I believe in the company, I want to buy the stock when this price has been beaten down. So if these stocks don't perform well, you know, this might be a great opportunity if you're an insider then to be buying it. So, you know, it might be the fact that the, the insider is buying at a discount and then that price might rebound, you know, several months down the line. So it's not refle reflected in the performance of this strategy. Um, but, you know, insider buying uh, as a standalone, 
I don't think uh, has much predictive power uh, as well as then, you know, are, are insiders buying at this point in time because the stock price is beaten down? And so that's why you're seeing a poor performance uh, of the strategy. That makes sense. And, um, you know, you mentioned before that looking at a long-term, uh, learn long-term data uh, is better than just annual. So um, one of the things uh, O'Neill's can uh, slim revised third edition strategy had an almost 24% gain over the last 10 years. Uh, what type of investor does it appeal to and why? Well, actually, I think you'll find over the long term, you've got uh, AI tracks, I think like four or five different Canslim approaches. Uh, William O'Neill has been a, a prolific uh, writer um, of, of the Canslim approach and has periodically tweaked uh, the Canslim strategy. And almost all of the uh, Canslim screens that AI track have very strong long-term performance. Um, so, you know, the Canslim approach, generally speaking, uh, is looking for stocks uh, that are exhibiting characteristics that O'Neill's research has shown. Um, you know, these are the characteristics of stocks that right before they have a, a big price explosion. Uh, and so, what the Kinslim approach looks for is strong short-term uh, earnings growth. So, you know, excel. Uh, quarterly growth year over year. So like, you know, Q1 of 2021 versus Q1 of 2020, you're looking at strong quarterly growth year after year, as well as a history of uh, good annual earnings growth, um, as well as then strong, very strong uh, price performance. So this is a uh, growth slash momentum oriented approach. Uh, so, you know, historic the, the Canslim screen, uh, over the last few years has been identifying a lot of the large cap tech stocks that up until, you know, up until basically two weeks ago uh, had been doing quite well uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, so it was enjoying, you know, that uh, market uh, rotation uh, into the uh, large cap growth stocks. Um, so, I mean, that is the type of stock uh, that typically has been passing this screen. Uh, you know, so if you are an investor who is interested in identifying uh, growth stocks, then the uh, the CanSlim strategies definitely uh, are are uh, uh, an approach that might be uh, of interest to you. And we have a long list of you know best performing screens uh, that we analyzed from last year. And uh, were there any surprises? And uh, I guess and, and I guess why were they surprising to you? Well, I think the thing that really jumped out to me was the fact that the uh, the foolish small cap eight screen, after having such a strong 2020, uh, turned in a relatively poor uh, 2021. Uh, and you know, looking at the criteria for for that screen, you know, it is a it's a value. I take that back. It is a it's a more of a growth oriented uh, approach, uh, but it's also uh, ten, it looks for smaller companies. Uh, so is this the case where small cap growth uh, was uh, a strategy that was out of favor uh, in 2021? Uh, it also does look at uh, price momentum, but it only looks at relative strength over the last 52 weeks. And I've noticed this uh, over time is if you use 52-week relative strength, you'll find stocks that have performed very well uh, over the last year, but oftentimes they might be at the end uh, of their run. Uh, and that price momentum might start to be, um, to start petering out. So you might have buying a stock that's sort of 
starting to, to top out and you're buying it right when that momentum is finally giving up and rolling over. Uh, so that could be, and this is again, my own opinion. So that could have been what was at play uh, as well uh, with the foolish small cap eight, but it's, you know, I used to write this article, Derek took over uh, over the last uh, couple of years, but whenever I would write this article, I wrote this for probably 10 years or so. That was always one thing that I was always very interested in and seeing is, you know, what happened, you know, did the top performer, did it carry over to the next year? But it was not surprising that if you saw a really strong performing stock screen one year, that the next year it might fall toward the bottom of performance. Interesting, interesting. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to highlight from the article that we didn't mention above? I mean, it just, it's just, uh, the, the thing that I really love about AI stock screens is, you know, they're all over the place as far as the, the approaches. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we have our guru screens and we have our factor screens. Uh, we have screens that are, you know, very value oriented. Uh, we have others that are, you know, price momentum, strong growth. So really, you know, if you're looking for a, a place to start when you're trying to find stock ideas, uh, the AI stock idea screens are a great place to start because, you know, AI just in general we don't preach a singular methodology. We don't say that, you know, this type of investing is what every person out there should be investing in. Everyone is different. You know, everyone has different risk tolerances, time horizon, et cetera. So, you know, just if, if you are looking for to invest in individual stocks, but don't know where to start because you have literally several thousand uh, to choose from, then, you know, if you start looking at the AI stock idea screens and looking again at those screens that have performed well over the long term, I think this is a, a good place for, for, for you to start. Excellent. And um, because you're so um, you know invested with the, our stock superstars report, I did want to ask you a few questions about that, and as well as uh, A plus investor screens, um, and then kind of just overall how to invest, how to use this information to invest with like you know more confidence and more certainty into the new year. Um, so our first question I'm asking, I wanted to ask was regarding our SSR service. Uh, the Group Three O'Shaughnessy portfolio turned in a gain of twenty-eight point five percent, which is impressive. Why? Uh, why was there such a difference in its perform, uh, performance relative to to the O'Shaughnessy small cap growth and value screen that was the top performing AAII idea screen in two thousand twenty-one? Well, yeah, uh, you know, I'm the I'm the lead analyst uh, and editor of the uh, Stock Superstars Report. This is one of AAI's premium uh, portfolio products, um, and you know the overall basis of the Stock Superstars Report is we look at four guru or superstar strategies uh, that have performed well over the long term. Uh, and one of those strategies uh, is from based on the, the research performed by Jim O'Shaughnessy. Uh, AII actually tracks, I think, around six or seven different O'Shaughnessy screens. Um, and the O'Shaughnessy screen that we use for the SSR portfolio uh, is very different from all of the other screens uh, that we track. So, you know, it's an it's an it would be an apples to oranges comparison when you say you know the group three screen was uh, portfolio was up twenty eight point five percent versus you know the hundred plus percent gain that we saw in that. But it's also very important to realize that for the stock superstars report, these are actually managed funds. Uh, there's real money uh, in these portfolios. Uh, so whereas we're rebalancing our stock idea screens on a monthly basis. Um, you know, this is a more of a 
a buy and hold uh, type approach. You know, we have quantitative sell rules as well. Um, but, you know, the, the group three O'Shaughnessy uh, screen used for SSR um, really took o O'Shaughnessy's uh, research to the next level. You know, he's written uh, several issue editions of his What Works on Wall Street book, which is one of the, a fabulous investment text. Um, but in one of his early versions, uh, editions of that, he actually put all of his eggs in the price to sales basket. Uh, and that is why the um, small cap growth and value screen of O'Shaughnessy's that we track uses only the price to sales ratio. Uh, he had done some initial research. Um, you know, he's a very, a very big quant guy, does a bunch of number crunching. And at one point in his career, he thought that the price to sales ratio was it when it came to valuation and looking when you're looking for deep value stocks, you use the price to sales. Uh, but actually, uh, he has now admitted that probably one of his biggest mistakes professionally was to put so much faith in price to sales. Uh, because just as, you know, growth versus value, you know, large cap versus small cap. There's a never ending rotation in the marketplace uh, that's, you know, over uh, you know, quarters, years, longer periods of time, certain strategies will fall into and out of favor. And even when you start looking at individual valuation metrics, such as price to sales, PE ratio, price to book, price to free cash flow, et cetera, even, they're, even though they're value uh, metrics, they're still one year price of sales might do well, the next year price to book, you know, whatever the case may be. And so what O'Shaughnessy discovered was that he started using a composite uh, for valuation. So he looked, he took a collection of value metrics, dividend yield, price to book, price to free cash flow, price to sales, PE, uh, etc. He put those all together into a singular composite. And that's what he uses now uh, to find, you know, deep value stocks. And that's what we use for the group three portfolio. We use a valuation composite uh, to identify uh, low price stocks, as well as elements of uh, earnings quality and financial strength. So this is an approach that is unique to the SSR and that we don't track um, within uh, the stock idea screens. So that is why you see uh, the big differential uh, there. But you know, generally speaking, the group three approach did ride that value uh, wave that took place last year. It also tends to identify uh, smaller companies uh, because of its deep valuation requirement. Uh, so once again, you know, small cap value did well last year. So I think that helped carry uh, the Group 3 portfolio last year within SSR. And as far as, um, you know, O'Shaughnessy portfolio and SSR, um, what do you think, like, do you think it will continue as strong as it did in two th into 2022? Or do you think it'll change? Or what was, what was your opinion about that? Well, if I knew as much as I love working for AII, I would probably be uh, in my ranch in Montana. So, uh, you know, that's past performance is no guarantee of future performance, as uh, I'm sure most investors have heard someplace uh over their over their careers, um, but you know it's you know we could be sitting here next year conducting this interview, uh, and as far as what all I know for sure is that you know the market is constantly changing. Uh, you know I I saw a statistic last um, at the end of last year that uh, if you looked at the top performing sectors in the S and P five hundred over the four quarters last year. 
in almost every quarter, there was almost a complete turnover as far as what the top performing sectors were, even on a quarter to quarter basis. Uh, I think there was maybe a couple of quarters where real estate was a strong, one of the top three or four uh, in a given quarter and maybe inf information technology as well. But by and large, even on a quarter basis, the uh, sector rotation was pretty significant. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing right now, you know, obviously it's what is today. Today is uh, it's the 10th uh, of January. Uh, you know, we're already seeing what appears to be a pretty strong rotation uh, out of large cap growth stocks. Uh, the NASDAQ has been in, in a little bit of a free fall now to start the year. Um, you know, that could rebound next week or it could continue. Uh, so I think, you know, generally speaking, uh, if as an investor, it's very important to have uh, a long-term uh, approach, um, but also to be adequately diversified so that you don't all have all your eggs in you know, the large cap growth baskets. So you'd be hurting right now. It would have served you very well probably over the last couple of years. But I also am of the opinion that no investor can know with certainty you know, when that rotation is going to take place. So uh, instead, and which is what the, uh, the cornerstones of the uh, Stock Superstars report, is we've looked at four strategies that have a long-term history of outperforming the market. But when you start looking at the four strategies, they're also uh, distinctly different from each other. So you're not going to be investing. So you're, you're diversifying from a style standpoint as well. Uh, so, you know, there's many ways you can diversify, you know, whether it's growth versus value, market capitalization, but we take it one step further with the SSR portfolio and diversify uh, on a style basis. So getting back to the ultimate question was, you know, do I know what's going to be doing well over the next year? I don't. Uh, and because of that, that's why I, I uh, preach the diversification uh, that we follow for the uh, SSR portfolio. And as much as we'd like to have a crystal ball at our fingertips, uh, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what makes uh, SSR such a great uh, tool uh, for individual investors, especially going into the new year? Well, I mean, I think that the the attraction uh, of the stock stupers report is, you know, as as human beings, you know, we like to follow successful people. Um, and, you know, why recreate the wheel when you have access to some of the best uh, investors uh, ever? Uh, and, you know, you can follow, you know, William, we follow the approaches of William O'Neill, uh, David Dremen, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy, uh, and John Neff for the SSR portfolio. And so, you know, if you're someone who truly believes that being able to mimic uh, the approaches of these superstar uh, investors um, does yield long-term success, which you know we've just uh, actually this this month we're celebrating our 20th anniversary uh, of SSR, uh, and over that since inception we've outperformed uh, our benchmark, which is the IYY ETF, which is a total market ETF. Um, so you know when we launched SSR, it was you know following the approaches of the superstar investors, you know adequately diversifying uh, will outperform the market over the long term. And that's what we've done over the last 20 years. You know, some years we've underperformed, other years we've significantly underperformed. Um, but, you know, over the long term, uh, we have a strong belief that by 
by following the strategies of these superstar investors that you will be able to outperform the market. And uh, looking at the overall end of the year performance review, as well as screens from SSR specifically, uh, why do you think small caps were able to have a revival this past year? I know you mentioned in the first part of our interview, you know, with uh, current market trends and how they influence it. But uh, what is your take on that? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it was probably uh, the the benefit of the economy starting to reopen. Uh, and there was a lot of optimism in the stock market, at least in the, the first uh, half. Uh, of of this of 2021, uh, you know, I think we started to see maybe a little malaise, or you know, here we go again um, with Omicron uh, and everything like that. But I think you know, I, I think it was the uh, the overall optimism of the market uh, really benefited small cap stocks uh, at, at least for most of of last year. So I think that is was a lot of it. Uh, you know, right now we're seeing a rotation out of large cap. Uh, growth stocks, whether or not that's going to be trickling down and, and people will start looking more towards uh, small cap stocks. But then generally speaking, you know, if the if the economy starts to slow down or we start seeing a, a stock market decline, you know, oftentimes it's the flight away from, from smaller cap companies that don't necessarily have the visibility of a large cap company. Um, but, you know, again, I, I'm not sure, you know, what's going to happen going forward, but I think I think it was probably... Uh, the the optimism of the marketplace last year that benefited uh, smaller stocks uh, by and large. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for you know taking the time to talk with me today, Wayne, about the end oh. of your stock screens and everything. My pleasure, Jenna. Thank you very much. That was very informative. And um, I'd like to tell our viewers that if you'd like to check out our end of year stock screens article, uh, we have a couple different ones uh, in the January issue of the AAII journal. Uh, you can visit aaii.com slash journal. And uh, thanks again, Wayne. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time for me. Uh, yeah, and everything. Actually, if you wouldn't make this one one last plug, though, you can yeah. also track all of our stock screens if you go to the screen, uh, stock ideas area of AI.com. And those performance numbers uh, are updated uh, on a monthly basis as well. So another another resource that's with more timely information. Well, excellent. That's great to hear. And uh, I'm so excited for everybody to start investing in this in the new year and uh, and see how everything goes. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy yeah. New Year, Jenna. Awesome. Thank you. You too. Take care, Wayne. Take care. And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner Discover Bank on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look. With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit aaii.discoverbank.com to learn more. And that's it, folks. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Charles Rotblood and Wayne Thorpe for making time to chat with me today. 
I don't know about you, but I'm definitely interested in using our end of the year stock analysis to find new screens and strategies to use in the next few months. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future II shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event on our YouTube channel and make sure to register for upcoming AAII events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And hey, if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the II show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify. Also, you can view the full end of the year stock screen review in the January 2022 issue of the AAII journal by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you all. Happy investing.